You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Open your Bibles, please, to the Book of Acts, Chapter 8. Father, thank you so much for this time we can spend together now in your Word. And I pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us insight from your Spirit, Most of all, Lord, that you uh, prepare our hearts to receive what you have to give us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we begin in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 18. But really, I have to spend a little bit of time in the previous section just explaining where we're at. We're sort of dealing in general with a guy named Philip in the early church. Philip was one of the seven men chosen to to serve the really needy widows among the Christians in those early days of the followers of Jesus described in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And Philip was also one of those who was scattered in the persecution that came after the martyrdom of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian church. The the, the Christians in Jerusalem started receiving a wholesale persecution, and therefore they scattered over the region, and Philip was one of those who was scattered. Well, Philip left Jerusalem for his safety, and he went to Samaria. Again, not among the Jews. The Samaritans were a different people group, a, a different race, so to speak. You or I maybe not be able to tell a great deal of difference between the Jews and the Samaritans at that time. But believe me, they knew there was a difference. And generally speaking, I don't want to speak for every individual that day, of course, but generally speaking, the Jewish people of that day did not like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans did not like the Jewish people of that day. There was just this sort of prejudice, this sort of conflict between them. But Philip put all of that in the background, and he preached Jesus to the Samaritans, and the reality of God's presence, and the reality of God's power among them, together with the straightforward preaching of Jesus. It brought many to believe. And we love what it said. We looked at this last week in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, where it said that there was great joy in that city. I loved it because I want that for our city, right? I want to see the word of God preached and the presence of God uh, manifested in just such reality that uh, there's great joy in our city. Now, In that great work that was happening there in the city of Samaria, there was a very notable convert. I mean, many people were coming to faith in Jesus, but there was one very notable convert, and his name was Simon. Let's just pick up his story real quick, looking at verse 9. And I'll just read the text without commenting greatly on it. It says, But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then, notice it here in verse 13, Simon himself also believed, And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So this man, this Simon, who was a a sorcerer, some kind of magician, I'll leave it up to you to decide how legit he was, right? I mean, maybe he was a man who was genuinely in touch 
with dark occultic powers. And maybe there were some uh, things that he did sort of from the power of, of darkness in this one. Or, and I think that this is perhaps a little more likely, but I can't say for certain. It's probably more likely that he was just a, a magician, a trickster, right? He used sleight of hand and deception in people's minds and things like that to create this aura of this man with great spiritual power. You know, he was a a mind reader, a sorcerer in that same way that, you know, the person just you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger and that kind of thing. And oh, wow. And uh, all that kind of business. Well, you you know, the same things out today in the world today. There is real spiritual reality, sort of from the powers of darkness. That's for sure. But there's just a lot of phoniness and flim-flam and trickery out there as well. Then I don't know where the trickery began or ended. I mean, we don't know either, but he was respected in that community as someone who had real spiritual power, so much so that it says that they of this man that this man is the great power of God. That's a pretty big reputation in a community, right? Not that he has the great power of God, but that he is the great power of God. But notice this. It says they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. Those who had previously been astonished by Simon and whatever work that he did. Well, now they, they, they believed Philip and what he preached and he brought the message of the gospel and they preached it. But what I really want you to notice again, come to it now in verse 13. It says, then Simon himself also believed And he was baptized and he continued with Philip. Simon was convinced by Philip's preaching and by Philip's amazing miracles. Maybe he thought, listen, I just do tricks, but this man's got the reality of the power of God. And he believed to the point where he declared his belief. He was baptized and he continued with Philip. Simon became a follower of Philip and of his ministry. I just want to make this point here. Up to this point, up to Acts chapter 8, verse 13, there is nothing in the text to indicate that Simon's belief was false or insincere. Yet, his faith, just like everybody's faith, is going to be tested by his conduct and his response over time. So what happens? Well, let's just continue on. And again, some of this we covered last week. I'm just kind of get a running start into our text. Verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So this remarkable work. The apostles come along, they put their stamp of approval upon Philip, who, by the way, let's remember, Philip was not one of the 12 apostles, was he? He's one of the new leaders in the church, one of the younger. We presume younger. We're not given an age on Philip, but since he's around a long time in the book of Acts, I think we can presume that he's younger. He's one of the younger leaders, one of one of the, the, the new leaders in the church. And, and listen, the apostles come and put their stamp of approval. Philip, we approve. When we look at what God's doing among the Samaritans, and even though it's blowing our mind because it's outside of the bounds of the Jewish people, we say, yes, this is wonderful. Yes, this is good. God is doing a work here, and we will lay our hands on these new converts and ask that they be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were in some demonstrable way. That brings us up to verse 18. Let's look at it together. And when Simon saw... That through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. 
He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So do you kind of get what's going on here? In some kind of gathering of the church, the apostles are praying for the Samaritans. They're laying hands. They've got the prayer team up front here, right? I mean, in some way or another. By the way, it just brings to my mind this thing. It's Sometimes we think that the way we do church today is completely different than the way they did it. It's not. I think there's more similarities than we often think. And they had some kind of prayer team, right? I mean, I don't want to be flippant about this, but in some way, Peter and John stood in front of them. They said, hey, guys, we're going to pray for people. Come forward if you want prayer. Come to us if you want prayer. They laid hands on them. And in some way, it was evident that these people were filled with the Holy I don't know how it was evident. Maybe there were some particular spiritual gifts manifested. Maybe there was just such a sense of joy and peace at the work of God. Maybe there's just a heavy sense of the moving of God and the Spirit of God. I don't know exactly how it was. But a guy like Simon, looking from the outside, could say, Wow, something's happening here. I want some of that. What Peter and John are doing the way that they lay their hands on people and pray for them and something happens with those people, I want that and I'm willing to pay some money for it. You see, Simon noticed that when Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritans and prayed for them, something happened and whatever that something was, it impressed Simon. And so what did he do? It kind of blows our mind, doesn't it? You look at it right there in verse 18. It says, he offered them money. Simon thought, That the Holy Spirit was merely a power that could be bought and sold. He wanted to control the working of the Spirit, and he regarded the Holy Spirit as a power that he could use as he wanted. He thought of the Holy Spirit as a power instead of a person who ruled his life. And this is a huge, huge foundational principle for understanding and receiving the work of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, when we start our Wednesday evening series, we've titled it Charisma, the Gifts of the Spirit. The first evening, that's mostly what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how absolute that is, uh, essential that is, I should say, for understanding everything else about the moving of the Spirit of God. Because as soon as I start thinking of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal power, then I start that well, I can buy it, right? I can throw it. I can use it. But when I keep in my mind the biblical truth that the Holy Spirit is a person, then I say, Holy Spirit, you're in charge. You do what you want to do. Then the issue does not become how much of it do I have. The issue becomes how much of me does he have? And that's quite a different mentality, isn't it? Well, we'll be talking about that in our first Wednesday night study in that series. But please, what I want you to understand here is that Simon thought, and probably from his background, right? I mean, he was a conjurer. He was a magician. He was a trickster of some kind. He bought and sold tricks all the time, didn't he? 
And just from his background, that's the only frame of reference, there's the only file cabinet in his head that he had to put this in. Well, there's Peter and John, they're doing this. I want to do it too. How much do I pay to be able to do this? Well, it's interesting. There's a word that has come up in Christian theology from what Simon did. And I don't expect anybody here to know this word. I don't expect you to remember it. It's the word simony. Simony is the word used for describing the sin of buying or selling church offices or privileges. Why? Because it's done in the same spirit as this Simon in Acts chapter 8. Now, this sin is sometimes practiced today, right? Of course, it was really big during the Middle Ages, right? During the Middle Ages, church offices were bought and sold and sort of auctioned off regularly. That's simony, pure and simple. But today, we sort of have a variant of simony. I I don't know anybody who's buying and selling church offices, but I tell you, there is a mentality that goes that's sort of related to simony. And here's the mentality. People think this, that blessing follows money instead of understanding that money follows blessing. Do you get the idea? I mean, some people think, well, well, look, I mean, if there's a lot of money into something, well, of course it's going to be blessed, right? Why? Because blessing follows money. Isn't that a wrong way to think? Instead, the right mentality is to think, no, 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 no. Money will follow blessing. Wherever God is blessing, wherever God is moving, there will be enough. Or sometimes there'll be just enough. And sometimes that enough comes through some struggle of prayer or faithfulness and good stewardship and all the rest. But that general principle is true. We should not think that blessing follows after money. That wherever there's a lot of money, well, obviously God is blessing. No, not necessarily. No, instead think that money follows blessing. That's how it is in God's economy. And anyway, Simon had this all mixed up in his head, and therefore he asked this question, verse 19, give me this power also, see, think of the Holy Spirit as a power, not as a person, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon didn't really want the Holy Spirit himself, but he wanted the ability to impart the power of the Holy Spirit to other people at his own will. That would give him a lot of spiritual authority, right? I want you to notice. He did not come to Peter and John and say, I need the Spirit of God to transform my life. Did he say that? No. He said, I want the power to be able to bestow it upon other people. I want to be the guy with the electricity coming from his fingers. I want to be the guy who can throw the woogie on other people, spiritually speaking. He wanted to possess spiritual power for his own personal ends. As I said before, he wanted to have the Holy Spirit instead of the Holy Spirit having him. So what's Peter going to do? What's the response? Because remember, Philip's not directly in this picture. I'm sure Philip was present. But listen, the apostles are there, Peter and John. I mean, these guys walked with Jesus. We're going to trust that they have wisdom to know what to do in this situation. So what's Peter going to do? It's kind of shocking, actually. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, this is to Simon, 
Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, that if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow. That's a response, isn't it? I mean, look, nobody would blame if Peter put his arm around Simon's shoulder and said, yeah, I think you're mixed up about a few things here, right? But for whatever reason, it was appropriate at this time and this place that there be a public rebuke of Simon. Now, no doubt he made his request publicly, right? There they are at some kind of meeting. People are receiving whatever God has to give them through the Holy Spirit. Simon says, I want some of this. Give me this power to be able to do this. And please, can he make some requests publicly? Therefore, publicly, Peter rebukes him. And he says in very strong terms, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, of course, Simon was wrong in that thought. The gifts of God are received freely from him by faith. As it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. I love this verse. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, there's no entrance fee into the kingdom of God. You want to know one reason why? Because if there was, you could never pay it. I'll turn it around another way. The only entrance fee there is into the kingdom of God is everything, right? You lay everything before God. You submit to him totally. He's your Lord over everything. To, to, to think that you can just parcel out a little bit here, a little bit there, buy this from God, receive that. It's, just, it's a, this idea of spiritual merchandising and transaction making. It's just an abomination before God. You see, what we receive from God will affect what we do with our money, but you cannot purchase the gifts of God with money. You just can't. It just doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. Therefore, in very strong terms, what did Peter say to Simon? He said, your money perish with you. Simon was so wrong that he deserved this strong rebuke. I like how J.B. Phillips, that's a translation that I read from time to time, I like how J.B. Phillips translates the phrase, your money perish with you. He translates it like this. If you have sensitive ears, you might want to cover your ears just for a moment here. (laughs) J.B. Phillips translates it this, to hell with you and your money. You know, it gets the sense, right? Your money perish with you. Now, Peter's bold discernment in this situation must have been very awkward to watch, right? Don't you think everybody around is kind of going, wow. It's getting hot in here, isn't it? (laughs) Peter, what's up? And very few people today would rebuke what seemed to be a young Christian so strongly. Yet Peter was willing to tell Simon the truth in love, even though it was probably hard for Simon to hear it. And those standing by here again, I wonder about the whole context. Sometimes it feels so cheated in the Bible because we can't see it. 
But but wouldn't wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been natural to you for for Peter to say these first words very strongly directly to Simon in, in the presence of everybody. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this manner, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. And then Peter walks up to him and puts his arm around him and says, "Repent therefore of this wickedness." And pray that God perhaps would forgive the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned and bound by a bitterness and bound by iniquity, as he says there. Wouldn't that seem natural to you? That yes, it was a strong rebuke, but it was delivered in love. It was important for Peter to say it. It was important for Simon and the people around them to hear it. Matter of fact, those are very strong words that he says there. It's really kind of shocking there in verse 21 where he says you have neither part nor portion in this matter because your heart is not right in the sight of God now Peter's rebuke of Simon here does not exactly answer a question that many people have about this text and here's the simple question was Simon a true Christian or not Was he genuinely born again or not? I want you to think about this because I think it's a very worthy question. First of all, I could say that Simon gave many evidences of conversion, at least to outward observation. And friends, that's all we have, right? Maybe you have the ability to peer into someone's spiritual heart and know if they're absolutely converted or not converted. I don't. I can see their outward actions. I can see their outward. I can hear their confession of faith. I can go on that basis. But what's interesting is that outwardly, Simon had a lot going for him. Outwardly, Simon expressed belief in the preaching of Philip. Look back at verse 13. It says, then Simon himself also believed. Right? That's what it says. He expressed belief in the preaching of Philip. It also says there in verse 13, that Philip received Simon as a kind of follower. At the end of verse 13, it says, he continued with Philip. I mean, he continued with him. Philip received him as some kind of disciple, as some kind of follower. We also know from verse 18, where Simon noticed this when Peter and John were laying hands on others, that he attended meetings, he attended gatherings of Christians. So put those three things together. He expressed belief in the preaching of the gospel. He he followed a Christian leader and he attended meetings of Christians. Most of us would say, well, I think he was a Christian for all these reasons. I think Philip regarded Simon as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Why? Acts chapter 8, verse 13 says that Philip baptized him. He was baptized. Now, does anybody here in this room think that Philip would look at Simon and say, well, I don't think you're a true follower of Jesus, but I'll baptize you anyway. No, as far as Philip could tell, and I think Philip was willing to admit that maybe he was one, but Philip would say, look, as far as I can tell, you, you seem sincere in your belief. From what you say, from how you act, it seems credible to me that you are a believer. Now, please, we understand that Philip could not actually see into Simon's spiritual heart and know with complete certainty that he was sincere in his faith. But, but he had demonstrated enough to make his proclamation of faith credible. And he was therefore baptized. Yet, 
It is also possible to take Peter's statement right here in verse 21. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. That could be taken as evidence that Simon was not a true convert, right? As if Peter is saying this. Listen, Simon, I know you, you, you say you believe, but your actions right here demonstrate to me that your heart is not right with God and that you are not a true convert. You don't really believe with sincerity. His case then would be a warning to us, would it not? I like what James Montgomery Boyce says here. He says here that Simon's case is a warning to anybody who thinks that just because he or she has made a profession of faith or who has gone through certain motions expected of Christians, that he or she is right with God for that reason. That is certainly not the case. You know, the, the Bible says something about the faith that's needed to make someone right with God. And it says that you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. Now, the confess with your mouth thing, anybody can say that, right? I, I can see it. You can see it. Okay, well, that person has confessed with their mouth. The believe with the heart thing, well, that's harder to know, isn't it? And, and so we just say there's a limit to our ability to certainly know in somebody else. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, men may come very near. They may be intellectually convinced of the supremacy of Jesus. They may even decide that they will adopt his ethical ideal. They may go so far as to determine that they will imitate the perfection of his example. But these things do not make men Christians. You could say, listen, I like hanging out with Christians. I appreciate much in the Bible. I admire Jesus as a spiritual leader. I want to imitate his life. You could say all those things and never put sincere faith in who Jesus is and what he did to save you on the cross. Now, you might be thinking from all this that I'm making the case pretty strongly that we know that Simon was not genuinely converted. Well, I don't know. Because at the same time, you can observe this. When Peter says those words, Acts chapter 8, verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. He is almost quoting some words that Jesus said to him. This is what Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 13, verse 8. He said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter wasn't denying Jesus right then. He was just misguided in his heart. Peter wasn't an unbeliever. He was just out of the will of God. So friends, here's the great question. Was Simon a genuine believer, a genuine convert? Or was he not a genuine believer, not a genuine convert? What's the definitive answer on that? I don't really know. But I can tell you this with absolute certainty, absolute certainty, he was headed in the wrong direction. And therefore, he needed this rebuke. One could say that he was headed towards hell from the phrase, your money perish with you. Doesn't that imply that that's where you're going? Now, listen, it says there in the text, he says this in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 23, 
I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That accurately describes Simon's heart. Yet, Peter didn't attempt to cast a demon of bitterness or iniquity out of him. What did he do? Peter called him to repentance. He says, repent, therefore. And he called him to prayer. He said that pray God if perhaps the wickedness of your heart may be forgiven. And then he called him to righteousness, dealing with the thoughts of his heart. And I wonder, maybe it was pride in Simon that prevented him from a genuine belief in Jesus. I don't know. Maybe it was pride that was holding him back. He had received a lot of attention, a lot of acclaim there in Samaria for supposedly being the great power of God. Listen, Peter confronts him very... Simon... You are totally headed in the wrong direction. You need to make this right. You need to get right with God. And there's no attempt at all to say, well, you know, we know it's not really important because you're already saved. There's no intimation of that whatsoever. There's an urgency. Simon, get right with God. I can tell your heart is not right in this matter. You are totally in the wrong direction. Repent, therefore. Now, look at verse 24. It paints the picture, if I could say this, even more negatively of Simon. Verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Did you see what Simon said, first of all, maybe I should tell you, go back. Look at what Peter told Simon to do in verse 22. Let's review that. Verse 22, repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon, you got to repent and you got to pray for forgiveness. And what does Simon respond? Verse 24, Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. You see, instead of actually humbling his heart before God, Simon asked Peter to pray that he would be spared the consequences of his sin. This shows that Simon felt a true conviction of the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't ready yet to deal with it and humble his own heart before God. And you know what? Peter could not humble Simon's heart for him. Simon had to humble his own heart. Wouldn't you agree that Simon's in a very bad place? A very bad place. But I'll say this, as bad as Simon's case was, he could still repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. I think about that. Talking to a lot of people here this morning. What a blessing it is to stand in front of so many people and be able to speak to them about the Word of God. And if I'm speaking to this many people, I'm just going to say it. I, I have no special knowledge. I'm just speaking in a statistical sense that there's more than a, just a few here. Honestly, you are on your way to hell. You are. I, I mean, whatever. You're rejecting God. You, you, you're, you're standing fast against Him. You're sort of gritting your teeth right now, pushing back whatever it is the Holy Spirit's saying to your heart, to your mind. As bad as you are, if you are on a a one-way express ticket to hell right now, you can repent today and Jesus Christ can rescue you. There's not a single person here who's gone too far. Nobody. 
Nobody. I don't care if you've sinned worse than anybody else in this room. If you've rejected God, if you blaspheme God on the drive over here. Which some of you driving in the rain, who knows if that might have happened. (laughs) None of that matters. None of that matters. You can repent, therefore, and you can be made right with God because of what Jesus did on your behalf. There's nobody out of reach in this room. There's nobody, not a single person. I mean, Simon the sorcerer was bad, don't you believe? I mean, he was in a bad place. And we could debate whether or not he was genuinely converted, but nobody debates it. He was in a very bad place. He was headed in a completely wrong direction. And now, right now, God could rescue him if he would repent and believe. It's the same for you. There's nobody here beyond the reach of God's love. You cannot out-sin God's love. His love is always there to reach you, always there to rescue you, but you can reject His love. You can turn your back on it. So why reject it? Why not submit to it right now and receive what God has to give you? That door of repentance and getting the heart right with God was still open to Simon if he would only take it, but Peter could not do it for him. I'll tell you this, and I mean it with all my heart. I can't believe for you. I can call you to believe, but I can't believe for you. I can call you to repentance, but I can't repent for you. Listen, I got enough repenting to do all on my own. I can't repent for you. I I can pray for you, but you better also pray for yourself, right? You better pray for yourself as well. And seek God to be made right with him. Friends, that's a very important point. God has made it that way in his plan, isn't it? That we must deal with God for ourselves. Nobody can believe for you. Nobody can repent for you. People can pray for you, but they can't pray instead of you. You need to pray also. Now, friends, we don't know what became of Simon. We don't know if he followed through on the conviction of heart that was evident there in Acts 8.24. Church tradition says that Simon went off the deep end and he became a dangerous false teacher among the early Christians. But, But you know what? That's not certain. Maybe he repented. Maybe he got his heart right with God. I don't know about Simon. I don't know what became of him. But what's going to become of you? God speaks to your heart. There's situations where in little ways or in great ways, he says, let's get this right before me. Are you going to respond to that call or not? And here's the great thing. This morning, we're going to receive communion together. And what a great opportunity for you to express your faith, for you to express your belief in Jesus Christ. But I just want to make it very clear. Jesus speaks to everybody here in this room. And he says, come, make it right with me. I can't believe for you. I can't repent for you. You can do that for yourself. God speaks to your heart and gives you the ability both to believe and to repent. But you need to take it. You need to do it. So let's pray together right now. And before we receive communion, I'm going to give people an opportunity to express that faith, to express that belief. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the the amazing power of the work of Jesus. We're so grateful for the the reach of your love that there's nobody here this morning who is beyond your love, your redemption. Lord, just as Simon couldn't have Peter believe for him or repent for him, 
Lord, neither can anyone here. So Lord, won't you move upon hearts right now to have that belief, to have that trust in you.